Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to February Atoms. I'm joined today by Rachel Egbeko, our Senior Editor, and we'll be looking at a number of the pieces and themes that feature in this issue. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nick. Good to be with you. What jumped out to you in this issue? Well, I really like the way how you chose the different papers. What I liked about it was that you could um, feel the diversity of our uh, specialty. I think there's about three themes maybe that come out of them. Mm. One would be accountability. Two, about unfamiliarity maybe with interventions or diagnoses. And three, very exciting, new possibilities. Um, so I wondered whether we could start with accountability. It's not something that we usually uh, discuss. Uh, and I wondered what made you think about the WHO top 10 list of threats uh, to global health um, uh, and relate that to Rob Wheeler's piece in the legal section. Yes, that's a, a really good starting question. So I, I can't... I can't remember how the idea arrived. I suspect I'd read Rob Wheeler's piece first, had it somewhere in the back of my mind, and 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 then went off slightly tangentially, feeling that the the, the WHO top ten list was a good place to start in terms of uh, demonstrating national accountabilities uh, for tackling these holo endemic diseases. And then I simply uh, developed that a little bit. Um, it was serendipitous, to be honest. I really like that um, jump, because if you read uh, Rob Wheeler's piece, other than a profound sadness, that's what uh, a young woman, uh, girl, young person had to go through, and a demonstration of... Uh, at least in England, an inability to reconcile what's required for an individual with um, actually delivering that uh, requirement in the mm. mental health uh, uh, arena. So one can empathise with the judge who had to try their best uh, to hold up the law mm. and uh, being in a situation where that was not possible just because of the way we have potentially made our priorities or um, set uh, our organisation. So there's this, um, it's not my problem, mm. really. But it is, It's as a society, it is our problem. So um, how, can we, how can we respond to that? Yes, it's, that was exactly the point I was trying to make, that I think a lot of intervention or uh, motivation to intervene um, comes from there being an accountable person for that particular intervention. Um, if it's too spread out, then um, I think there's always a risk that people will see it as not their job or responsibility and will not get on and 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 um enact the intervention that and that that was the point i was trying i was trying to make here 
So where do you think it lies? The key problem for me in this in, in this particular case was probably the shortage of secure CAMS beds, which we know are in short supply. And I think that's a reflective of how we've organised ourselves. I'm not mm. aware that there is a national accountability no. for the number of CAMS, secure CAMS beds yeah. uh, to enable appropriate provision for uh, young people. Mm. Um, and what we've seen during COVID is that the number of mental health problems is just rising. So this problem yes. is not going to get smaller. Leaving that uncomfortable space of accountability, maybe let's turn to unfamiliarity, which too is a, uh, an area of discomfort. So you chose two pieces to um, highlight. One is about food protein intolerance, enterocolitis syndrome, and the other is about cognitive behavioural therapy. Yes. So unfamiliarity in diagnosis and then unfamiliarity in a intervention. That's right. Well, um, I chose the CBT example because my impression is, rightly or wrongly, that um, there are many paediatricians who aren't completely aware of what it actually involves. That's why I thought this review article um, was so useful. Um, it breaks it down into the component stages um, and uh, this very much talked about, but I think not very well understood entity that is CBT and makes it come alive in a way I haven't seen in a, in, in a previous paper. I mean, it's been around for many years on the NHS for adults since the 90s. Um, but it's much less well-known in, in paediatric circles, I think. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it was, it was more a guided tour, or a, at least a, a guide to read the paper. Now, the F, the F Pie story is an interesting one. I remember it um, emerging, I guess, 10, 15 years ago. And um, I think the first reports were largely on rice-based reactions. But I'm no, no, not much clearer than that on the details. Anyway, as things evolved, it turned out that this was non-IGE mediated, although clinical phenotypically there was there was overlap. Um, and I've uh, intermittently followed this since, and I find it um, very interesting. I can't help thinking that we're not missing quite a number who have mild reactions to under scrutiny would probably be categorised as FPIs. So the BPSU study on which the paper was based, um, as the authors say themselves, may have underestimated the prevalence. Um, but none, nonetheless, interesting and still just a little bit enigmatic with a causal pathway that hasn't completely been decodified, I think is fair to say. It's about the rarity uh, of diagnoses so um, I, I can imagine that most of us would respond to the to the phenotype with fluid and adrenaline either because we're thinking septic mm. shock or we're thinking 
um, uh, allergy. Yes. Uh, uh, and then it turns out that uh, there's a there's a different entity that we might need mm. to think about. Yes. Um, just because of the rarity of it, it, it follows that the children who are afflicted by uh, by this entity um, will have gone through what the authors say, maybe a bit harshly, um, inappropriate uh, investigations. However, the more uh, usual diagnoses uh, should also not be missed. Um, yes. And given there's a there's a tension there, mm. um, I think after reading this uh, this paper, uh, people might uh, think about this uh, entity a bit more uh, and add it to their armamentory and hopefully mm. reduce the uh, the diagnostic process uh, for the for the children. Yes. To be fair, the number is. Uh, is low there's less than 100 identified but as you say there's probably more yeah it feels like that so how about new possibilities in terms of diagnostics uh, we use whole exome sequencing in a way when we think about uh, dysmorphology and developmental delay um, but now there's sort of a uh, a different avenue to take, and and you highlight um, the the work done on respiratory phenotypes without a diagnosis, uh, and also address the so what question there. Do you want to do you want to talk to that? Yes. So I chose um, a very interesting genetic study from Dan Dai and colleagues in Fudan University in Shanghai. Um, on the basis of it um, demonstrating very nicely how doors beyond dysformology can be can be opened using whole exome sequencing. That's been with us a few years now. It gained momentum largely, or I believe largely, on, on the dysmorphology front, but has found a lot of additional uses. It's uh, We've had quite a number of manuscripts describing its almost point-of-care bedside testing in neonatal emergencies where management decisions are made on the basis of um, the whole exome results. But I had no idea, um, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I didn't know about its applicability in rare respiratory diagnoses. And that's what interested me here. So they had a 1,000 children of, of those um, who had de defied diagnosis and of, of those, the whole exome sequencing approach um, yielded diagnoses in 14%, of which 50% lent themselves to a change in management on the basis of this result, which I think is pretty good. Um, and on the assumption, which I think is reasonable, that things that this will develop further, I would say this is in the terms of future, management is going to um, expand. So the uh, oncologists are way ahead of us in that, uh, in that regard as into using um, the uh, genetic coding to identify mm. diagnosis and mm. um, 
and prognosis um, uh, as well as interventions. Uh, so it's, it's, it's good to see that there is a wide applicability using the, uh, mm. these tools. And, and interestingly, in, this, in the same atoms, uh, uh, although the oncologists are way ahead in this area of the field, um, there is one area where that might not be so much um, uh, in the more mundane, if you will, uh, area of uh, mucositis. Well, here too, there's possibilities. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is the prosaic end of oncology, but issues like this, the, the mucositis, the pain, the constipation, and the the inevitable admissions of febrile neutropenia, which um, I think make the ex experience so unpalatable for children and their families. And mucositis, I think, the impression I have anyway, is that this is possibly the most unpleasant single issue. And um, it's spawned a, a whole raft of um, interventions, all, all of which are reactive, non-prophylactic, non, non all of which involve a combination of, let's say inverted commas, strong medicines, many of which have been um, designed locally um, and have found their niche in their region of um, origin um, and perhaps have some effect, often probably very little. Um, and things haven't really moved forward. And that's why I found the mucositis and lasers paper by Melody Redmond so interesting. There's actually a reasonable amount of literature out there, and they were able to undertake a systematic review. Well, they, their specific question was to test the pooled effectiveness of low-level laser prophylaxis um, before the erosive mucositis starts to happen. And the bonuses for children are well, fairly obvious, pain-free periods after chemotherapy, enjoying food, the lack of need for NG feeds or parental nutrition. Um, if this works, it's, um, it's really quite wonderful. Indeed. So having a sense of um, what's important uh, in terms of quality of life, mm. um, in addition to uh, the the very high level, sophisticated uh, diagnostics and interventions. I'm sure quality of life is something that we'll um, we'll be returning to in in future issues. But this seemed like a a really useful place to start. So. Those were some of the discussion points from this month. There's obviously a lot more in this month's issue, adc.bmj.com. And of course, on the new material you'll find on the site as well. So let us know if you have any thoughts um, and we'll see you next time. It's goodbye from us for now. Thanks for listening.